Where? Well, where we last left the story of David in 2 Samuel chapter 1, and we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 2 today, so if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there. David has just received news from an Amalekite that Saul and Jonathan are dead, that the Israelites had lost a major battle to the Philistines, and that David should assume uh, the kingship. And of course, David um, does not, in a greedy way, grab for the, for the crown like the Amalekite is, is kind of insinuating. Uh, but instead, he has this remarkable amount of grief uh, for, for Saul uh, and for Israel and for the glory of God. And he, he writes this incredible poem of grief and he, he records it uh, in, in an important book for, for Israel so that, that every, uh, every so often they'll pull this book out and they'll read it and they'll remember this national tragedy and, and what has happened and they'll remember the grief uh, and they'll remember God's faithfulness uh, even through it. And so as we get into 2 Samuel chapter 2, what begins to happen now is we begin to see David seeking God's wisdom for if now is the time that he should kind of move forward and in standing into uh, the kingship that God has promised him. So 2 Samuel chapter 1 is where we're at. Excuse me, chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, this is what... The writer says, in the course of time, so some time has elapsed, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. And the Lord said, go up. And David asked, well, where shall I go? And the Lord answered, to Hebron. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. When David was told that it was the men from Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to them to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul your master is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead. Ashori, Jezreel, also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. So once again in this story, we have a prime opportunity for David to grab at the crown that God has promised him. And what is so fascinating and telling to me is that the chapter does not just start off with David's sort of plan of of ascension to the crown or to the throne, right? It does not start with a strategy. It does not start with some formal campaign that is laid out. 
Uh, I read in the news or in following the news, there's already been three people this past week who have declared their candidacy for presidency, right? Whenever that election is. Uh, so what goes into all of this is not just a decision on a whim, right? They're meeting with lots of people. They're putting together strategies. They're putting together plans. They're building networks. They're, they're putting together uh, promotional realities and all these leads to these things. It's a giant campaign. And what we have in David, who is God's anointed king, is none of that. None of getting everything into order and instead, strikingly, a dependence upon God. It says he inquires of the Lord, is now the time? And whereas probably he's been inquiring this for a long time and felt that God has been telling him no repeatedly, now the answer is yes. And David says, well, where should I go? And God says to him, Go to Hebron. And of course, Hebron is an important place in the history of Israel because uh, it is a place that kind of marks, in, in some ways, the covenant that God made with Abraham. And so Abraham and many other uh, people of importance are buried at Hebron. It's an important place in the covenant story of God. It makes sense that God would tell David to go to Hebron. Let's just pause in the story now for a minute and just be as practical as we can. Wouldn't it be nice if when you went to God and said, God, should I do this? He would say to you, yes. Or quite frankly, no, right? We would be pretty happy if we were getting these clear-cut answers from God. Am I right? Right? And then imagine if he said yes, and then you said, okay, well, then where should I go? And he says, well, I want you to go to Hebron, right? And we oftentimes read stories like this, and, and this happens a lot throughout the Old Testament, really in, in, in the New Testament, and it is very difficult to relate it to our regular lives, is it not? Because unless you have some kind of special line of communication with God, oftentimes we throw up these, should I do this? And it seems like crickets, doesn't it? I mean, let's just be honest for a minute. I'm not making any characterization of God But doesn't it seem like, ah, I don't know. And sometimes it's very easy for us, especially in an over-spiritual way, to read into the stories of the Old Testament and assume that David said, God, where should I go? And then God immediately yelled out, Hebron, right? Hebron, of course, go there. But we have no idea exactly how God was speaking to David, except that David heard the voice of God and went. It is quite possible that David... Uh, was seeking the counsel of the priests. We know that he did this throughout 1 Samuel, Abiathar, uh, in his communication with God. It was probably likely that David seeking the counsel of people he trusts around him. It's even possible that David feels in his gut in this moment that it's right. And what I want to suggest to us this morning is that God speaks to us in a myriad of different ways, does he not? He speaks to us in our inner being. There's sometimes when we just know within us that this is the way that God is moving us. He speaks to us through the counsel of his people. There are times when the wisdom of those around us in the church or, or, or believe, brothers and sisters in Christ from, uh, from other places and they speak into us and it's as if they've spoken directly from God to us. Isn't it? And then there are times when we go through our own processes, right? We were talking about this in our community group on Friday, and it was super helpful to me 
to understand that we all have different processes of making important decisions, don't we? There are some of us who are really driven by our gut. We kind of know what we want to do in our gut. And there's others of us who really invite the counsel of other people. And then there's others who kind of have a meticulous sort of self, uh, self-set, practice, self-set checklist that they go through, gathering all the information until they're ready to make a decision. And I want to suggest to you, and this might seem a little off, that God works through those things too. That he didn't mess up when he wired you the way he wired you. And that you can engage the world as you see it. Sometimes God speaks to us through, through miraculous things, through dreams or through visions. We read that in the Bible, but we also see it in our modern world. In fact, in the Middle East in particular right now, the people who are coming to faith are often having dreams or visions about Jesus, and then people, missionaries or international workers or other existing Christians will come to them and explain to them what they've dreamed about. And God is still speaking in these ways. Here's the key. Whether through dream or through vision or through your gut or through your process or through the counsel of others, God has spoken to us in one definitive way. And it is the scriptures, right? And it is the scriptures in so much as they point us to Jesus, who is the ultimate word of God. I love uh, this phrase, one theologian that I really like. He said, the scriptures are our norming norm. I love that phrase because it says, there are many ways that God does speak to us, but the scriptures help us make sure that what we think he's saying is what he's actually saying. So, Let me give you a crazy but unfortunately true example of how sometimes this can go awry. I had a friend uh, who was a pastor, and he had a the pastor friend of his had a uh, uh, excuse me my friend was a pastor of the church. A congregant in his church came to him and said, "God is leading me to leave my wife and be with this other woman in the church. I just know He is. I feel it in me. There's a connection here. I'm doing these things and." Try as he might to counsel him otherwise, this man went on his own intuition in these ways because in his mind, God had told him. Well, of course, we know, or we hope we know, that the scriptures would say that can't be God's intention for us. And so I use that as a kind of big, grandiose example, but it also works in the smaller things, that as we're processing things and making decisions in our world, it is the scriptures that help us Make decisions in the right way. Now, here's the problem with that, and some of you are already thinking about this right now. Yeah, Adam, but the thing that I'm trying to make a decision about, that's nowhere in the Bible, right? There's no story of someone who did it the right way. There's no chapter and verse for that. These are hard decisions. And what I would suggest to you is that the Bible still speaks to that reality. In fact, probably speaks to it in an overarching narrative way. That is, the Bible speaks to us about who Jesus is, about the truth of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, and therefore what we are called to do and called to be in terms of our motivations, in terms of our attitudes, in terms of the things that drive us to make decisions. So where the decision or the particular reality that you're trying to make a decision about very well may not be covered in the Scriptures, Undoubtedly, the motivations that you're dealing with, 
the choices of attitude that are involved in the decision-making are covered there. And oh, by the way, the will of God is not some arbitrary bullseye, right? God is not looking for us to shoot an arrow and hit the exact middle. As you look throughout the entirety of the scriptures, God says that his will is a life oriented in worship towards him. Now that can happen whether you choose to buy a house in Bethlehem or Nazareth. That can happen whether you choose to take a job in Minnesota or stay in Pennsylvania. That can happen whether you choose to have a third child or stay with two. I've made that decision, by the way. <laughs> that, can, that, can, that can happen whether you choose to stay in your current company or, or make a move. Now, I'm not telling you to, to, to make light of any of those decisions. What I'm telling you is there's not, often not necessarily a wrong and right in these areas in so much as your motivations and your attitudes are right. Does this, does this make sense? So that as we engage in these realities, sometimes we read stories like that and say, God, why can't you talk to me that way? And yet, we have much more of God's voice than we're often willing to admit. So David hears from God. God says, yeah, now's the time. And I want you to go to to Hebron. And then it says that David goes. And it's easy to overlook that reality in the story. Now, of course he's going to go. God told him to go. But have you felt that God's told you to do some things sometimes and you haven't done it? Right? Has that ever happened to you? I mean, it's happened to you. Let's just be honest, right? We do that oftentimes. And so there's something, something important about stopping and realizing in this story that David not only seeks the wisdom of God, but when he gets it, he acts on it. Right? And this is, these are the things that make him the rightful king of Israel. And listen, he didn't just like, you know, book a room at the Hilton in Hebron, Right? He didn't just go dip his toe in the water at Hebron. He didn't get a, get a suite and an extended stay place for a month in Hebron just to see if this all would make sense and work out. It says he picked up his entire family and he moved them all to Hebron. He laid down roots. He bought a house. He, he put everything into this. This is a major step of faith for this guy. And you might say, well, what major step of faith, Adam? God's told him he's king, and God told him to go. Well, here's the problem, right? God had told him he was king a long time ago, and every time he tried to step towards that, he got in all kinds of struggle, did he not? His life was on the line. He was being pursued at every end by Saul. All of life was a struggle, and so he knew undoubtedly that when he made this move, there was going to be significant opposition to him. And it won't take till the end of the chapter, we won't get there today, to find out that the armies are mobilized against David as soon as he moves to Hebron. This is a big deal. David's taking a risk. Where he's at in Ziklag, he's actually kind of under the cover of the Philistines who were opposing the armies of Saul. David had made a difficult truce with the Philistines to kind of give him some protection when Saul was against him. When he moves from Ziklag, kind of under the protection of the Philistines, into Hebron, he's moving back into Israel proper. Every sense of of human protection that he had is now gone, and he's kind of stepping out into the clear and saying, okay, God, I trust you. 
church, we need to pause and remember that faith is always active. It is not simply a sense of, of thinking things through in our mind. This is important and having a faith or a creed that we believe in. But the faith that the Bible talks about is faith that moves us. Now, not always into crazy situations like taking on the crown and moving into Hebron and this kind of big, big move. But it, even in the small realities of life, it moves us. And, oh, by the way, faith is always associated with risk. If there is no risk, then there is no faith, right? Faith is necessarily relying on something. Trusting what we hope for. Confidence, the writer to Hebrews would say, in the things that we hope for. Faith and obedience are risky. They're sometimes dangerous. They're hard. We're often presented with the same challenges in life, are we not, church? To order your life around God is a risky proposition in this world. It just is. It could cost you relationships. It could cost you promotions. It could cost you the nicest house on the block, right? It could cost you any number of things. And the pull for us to have faith in the systems of this world or in the American dream, as it were, is incredibly strong. And instead of that, to be ordered around the things of God is risky. It's risky to be generous, isn't it? And yet generosity is one of the telltale symbols of living in the kingdom of God. When you're generous with someone, they could burn you. When you're generous with someone, it could cost you things that, that you need. It's, gener- it's, it's, it's risky to be generous. It's risky to love, is it not? It, it's risky to be gracious. It's risky to have hospitality and open your home to other people. It's risky to value the things of the kingdom. But what this story of David is going to remind us time and time again is that it's called faith and not risk because it's well-placed. That it's faith in a kingdom that truly does endure to the end. So here we see David ascending to the throne, but he does so in a pretty small scale, right? It's almost the picture of Jesus and the triumphal entry. David is not taking on the kingship of the entirety of Israel. It's simply the tribe of Judah, one out of 12 tribes that's now ready to recognize David as king. And it's all happening in this pretty small area or small town called Hebron. This is a pretty small endeavor, actually pretty invisible to the whole world and probably largely invisible to much of Israel, all that's going on. This is small stuff that David is stepping into. And I wanted to pause and say that this morning, because as we continue over the next several weeks, David is going to win some incredible victories. And the kingdom of of God under David is going to expand in some incredible ways. And for many of us who kind of have some history with the Bible, when we think about David, we think about him as the grand king over all of Israel. But it's important to remember that it started 
pretty small. And that David, in stepping into it, maybe was believing what Jesus would later put into words, that the kingdom of God is a lot like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds, yet grows to the largest of all garden plants. The mustard seed is a highly improbable victor. And yet, when its growth is done, is undeniably the biggest of them all. This is how God works. Why? Because it shows that it's God who has done it and not his human agents. We're meant to see this that so that at the end, when David is ruling over this giant kingdom, we understand that it is God who has expanded his kingdom, not David as some grand warrior. It starts small, and it grows in undeniable ways. And once again in the life of David, we're reminded of Jesus, are we not? Who had been promised the kingship upon his arrival in earth, and yet went through his earthly life being rejected and not received as king. And then even when he comes into Jerusalem at his triumphal entry, though the story of the scripture paints it in broad strokes, much of the world has no idea who this Jesus guy is. And much of Israel has long since rejected him. And yet Jesus lays down his life, and in his death, as it were, as the ultimate mustard seed, it springs forth life to everyone who would be joined to him. That nearly 2,000 years later, we can look back and say, what was improbable at the cross is undeniable now. And it gives us hope as a church that the enduring kingdom that the story of David outlines for us is true and therefore is all the hope that we need to give our lives into this story that God is telling through Jesus. So the kingdom begins in Hebron in small scale, but it's there. And the tribe of Judah has anointed David. And David has moved and the, and the people have moved and, and a kingdom has been established. But as we said, it did not take long for other kingdoms to rise in opposition, right? We've got Abner, the son of Ner, who says, I see a void here. Saul is dead and I have been the, the, the commander of all of his armies And so there's a void here, and rather than let God's anointed king rise, I'm going to fill the void. This has often happened, right? There's voids in the world uh, in terms of, of, of allegiance to God that are filled by any number of allegiances, any number of things. See, whereas David listened and sought the counsel of God, Abner listened and sought the glory of self. He had no right to the throne. He knew very well that God had anointed David. He had heard it from the mouth of Saul several times in 1 Samuel, and yet he grabbed for it because the opportunity for power and control was there. 
How often in our lives do we grab for power and control because the opportunity is there? And knowing that he's not a prince, therefore a rightful heir to the throne, he himself, not God, anoints Ishbosheth to be king over all of Israel. Whereas God had grandiosely said, David's my man. Abner says, how about this guy over here? And Ishbosheth becomes nothing more than a puppet king for Abner. We read, we'll read a little bit later in, in chapter 2 or in chapter 3, where it says that Ishbosheth is scared to death of Abner. He'll do whatever he says, whatever he wants, whatever needs to be done to keep Abner happy. Forget Ishbosheth for a minute. It's Abner who's running the show. And once again, we're reminded that there will always be other kings that rise in opposition to the kingdom of God. I mean, this is one of the, the telltale realities throughout the entirety of the narrative of Scripture. And today, in our world, there are other kings that rise in opposition to God. And all too often, the most powerful kings and or queens in our realities that rise in opposition to God are us. Now, sometimes we'll anoint other things and give them power and control, but really it's only so that we can, through them, exert power and control in our own lives. So theories or systems or realities of the world or wants or needs, things that give us security or acceptance, things that give us significance. And these are the things that we pledge our allegiance to. These are the things that we worship. These are the things that we look to for our identity. And in many ways, it mirrors the story that's happening here in 2 Samuel chapter 2. I wonder, what are the other kings who are warring for your affection in your life right now? And then... There's this strange story between the story of Abner and the story of of David becoming king over Judah. David writes this letter or sends messengers to read this note uh, to to the people of Jabesh-Gilead. And Jabesh-Gilead's a small kind of area uh, that had been loyal to King Saul. Saul had won a great victory for them. Uh, They were part of Israel and, and they were very loyal to King Saul. And so after hearing of Saul's death, And Jonathan's death, uh, the people of of this area, they went and they recovered the bodies, uh, the body of Saul, and they gave him a proper burial. So remember Saul had been hung up in the Philistine camp and was being mocked and his body was being abused. And at great cost to to themselves, great great, uh, risk to their own lives, they went there, they retrieved the body of Saul, they brought it back, they gave Saul the proper burial. And David is writing to them to say, thank you. Thank you for honoring God's anointed king. Thank you for, in doing so, honoring God himself. But David is also going to use the opportunity to sort of winsomely invite them into the kingdom that God is establishing through him. He says, Saul is now dead, but 
God has appointed me king and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. And he's inviting them into this reality of blessing. He's offering them peace and he's offering them life and and the fullness of blessing. It's telling to me that David doesn't say to them, listen, I'm in charge now. Let's get everything in line. Saul was king. He's dead. Now it's me. I'm your king. I'm your rightful king. You'll serve me. He doesn't threaten them. He doesn't rise up armies to go, to go lay siege to the area. He doesn't demand their affection. And in so doing, he speaks clearly of the character and heart of God for our world. God desires the worship of all the people of the world, but God is drawing the world to himself through loving and gracious demonstrations of blessing that is ultimately portrayed by Jesus' death for the entirety of the world. Constantly calling the world to himself, being patient, not leveling threats over them, but calling them through love. The story doesn't tell us what decision that Jabesh Gilead makes right here and right now. But the geography of the story is pretty important for us to consider. You have this area called Jabesh Gilead. And their allegiance at the moment is unknown. And to the south of them is Hebron and Judah, where David is established as the rightful king over the people of God. And right to the north of them is where Abner has appointed Ishbosheth as a puppet king. And they're going to be caught in the crosshairs of the ongoing battle between the kingdom of David and the opposing kingdom of Ishbosheth of Israel until David is king over all of Israel. And in many ways, it, point, it paints a picture for us of the reality in our world, does it not? But there is a kingdom that God has established that to many who don't know it, it seems invisible. But Jesus is king, and he's graciously inviting people into the fullness of life that he offers. He's calling them to, to be yoked to him, to call him king, to, to have an allegiance to him. And he says, when, when you're yoked to me, it, it grants you this, this sense of peace and, and this, this, this full sense of life where you, you're able to lay down your burdens. But there are opposing kings who are also calling for the allegiance of the people. And this is the world that we live in. And so I think there are two things to think about as we finish up this morning. The first is, are you in Jabesh Gilead? Have you thrown your allegiance toward Jesus? Or are you still on the fence? Have you felt Jesus pursue you with grace and with love and with mercy? Have you felt him call you to the fullness of life? Or is this news that you're just beginning to hear 
And this morning, if you find yourself symbolically in Jabesh Gilead, I would say look no farther than the rightful King Jesus, who in the full demonstration of love for you has laid down his life so that you might have the full inheritance of the kingdom of God. Many of you who are here this morning have said, no, I'm in the camp at Hebron. I've committed to Jesus. I'm aligned to Him. I've received Him as my Savior. I worship Him as my Lord. And then I would ask you this question. Then where is your Jabesh Gilead? Because it is the way of the kingdom that the king sends those who are loyal to him as his messengers to Jabesh Gilead to tell the people there that there is a rightful king and that he is pursuing them in love and that he has established a place where we can have a full sense of identity, the tangible realities of peace and of life and of certainty and of security. If you are a follower of Jesus, your Jabesh Gilead is pretty easy to identify. You're probably going there right from here, right? You live there. Or you're going there on Monday when it's time to go back to work. Or the next time you get together with your circle of friends. Or the next time you're with your extended family. In all of these places, God has, Jesus is sending us as ambassadors of his kingdom to winsomely, not with threat, not with demanding arguments, not with fiery rhetoric, but, but with the winsome nature of grace and love and generosity and a call to life to let people know that what they see as an invisible supposed kingdom is quite real. And Jesus is the rightful king. And though he rules only over a segment now, there is coming a time when he will be the king of the entire world, when all things will be set right, when all wrongs will be set right, when all evils will be undone, when the world will be as God intends it, to be, and you can begin to taste it now. Friends, we believe this, and it's why we've structured our church the way we've structured it, right? We've said, is it important for us to grow one big church in Hebron? Or do we value Jabesh Gilead? And we said, no. The church has to be a place that sends. And so we are a multi-congregational church. We meet in Bethlehem, but we also meet in Nazareth. And we intend to meet in many other places as God gives us space. Because the truth of the gospel is not to build a solitary kingdom in one place, but to take the message of the kingdom to all places because Jesus is who he says he is and the kingdom is as real as as he promises it is. It's changing us, and as it changes us, it sends us. Church is why we have what we call the one-for-one initiative. And as we start a new calendar year, it's right for me to remind us that it's our dream, it's our prayer, that every one of us would see our lives reproduced by the end of this year. 
that one new person from Jabesh Gilead would be in Hebron. Does it make sense? Or better yet, that the kingdom would grow beyond Hebron because we're living in the outpost in the frontier and we're taking the message of the king there. Remember we gave you the little mustard seeds and the little tiny jars because we said God's kingdom starts improbable, but it ends up undeniable. Imagine if at the end of this year, every one of us saw ourselves reproduced here and in Nazareth. Imagine the way the kingdom would continue to grow. This is why we orient ourselves the way we were. God's kingdom was never about building a temple in one place and being satisfied. It was always about taking the message of the rightful king to the ends of the earth. When David stepped into Hebron, when he moved his family into their new house, when he began to unpack things and left half of the things that he had packed up in the garage never to be unpacked, right? We know how that goes. I wonder what was going through his mind. All right, God. (laughs) I wonder if he ever even imagined it would grow to the extent that it did in his solitary lifetime. Because after all, he was standing on the shoulders of generations who had followed the covenant promise of God before him. God's promise to him was not brand new. There he was at Hebron looking at the grave of Abraham, who when he was 100 years old, God said, you're going to have a kid. The kid's going to be the father of a great nation. And in the same way, here we stand on the shoulders of generations who have given their life to the covenant promise of God. And it is because of that, the writer to Hebrews says, that we can fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we can have hope in a broken world. And we can resist the oppressing move of of opposing kingdoms. And we can stay loyal to the right king. And we can bear witness through our livelihood in grace, in hospitality, in generosity, in love, in mercy to those who live around us, calling them to the rightful king. The story from 2 Samuel chapter 2 is not just an interesting story about how a kingship starts. It's a reminder to us that we've got a role to play in the ever-expanding kingdom of God. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, our role is not to be the king. But our role is to be the messengers that are sent. Jesus is the king. He's the rightful king. His whole life was oriented towards following the will of God in the same way that David models in this way. So much so that he says to God famously in his prayer in John chapter 17, I have brought you glory by accomplishing the work you've given me to do. The will of God was central to the life of Jesus. And in everything, he took risk after risk in faith, putting himself out there for the expanse of the kingdom of God. What seemed like an ultimate defeat turned out to be an undeniable mustard seed that had grown into a large plant when crucifixion became resurrection. 
and when resurrection became empowered disciples, and when empowered disciples became a Pentecost church, and when a Pentecost church, though persecuted, became a global movement of the kingdom of God. And we are part of it. But there are still neighborhoods and still corridors and still homes and still workplaces and still family members and still friends who don't yet know that the kingdom of God is not some invisible otherworldly thing. So what will it be? If you're in Jabesh Gilead, are you willing to say Jesus is king? And if you've already said Jesus is king, do you believe that he's called you to be a messenger? And if you believe he's called you to be a messenger, then will you take some steps and risks of faith to see the kingdom of God move forward? Can I pray with you?